Um, yep, as Peter said, we'll be reading from Mark 15, verse 40, from to chapter 16, verse 8. Great. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger of Joseph, and Simon. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph, and Joseph brought him linen cloth, took down the body and wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. When he rolled a stone, then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salmon, brought spices so, that, so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early in, on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the, to the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Gracious Father, thank you so much for the resurrection of Jesus and that we can learn about that today. We do pray that you would help us to focus our minds not on things which would otherwise distract us but on your word and the, its implications for our lives and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When archaeologists lifted the lid on an Egyptian coffin that had been stored at Sydney University for 150 years, they got an enormous surprise. They had no idea the two-and-a-half-thousand-year-old coffin was filled with human remains. So begins an article on the ABC News website this Tuesday just gone by. How about that, eh? The Nicholson Museum at Sydney University is one of my favourite pla favorite places in the whole of Sydney. Uh, if you haven't been there, you should track it down sometime and have a good look through it. It's a, a great place to visit. It's free of charge and it's full of antiquities from Greece, Rome, Mesopotamia and, of course, from Egypt. But this particular coffin they didn't even have it on display. They had it stored in a classroom which is used for workshops. And for one and a half centuries, 
it was assumed that there would be no corpse or no parts thereof inside. We could not have been more wrong, declared the very surprised museum curator, because inside they, they found a, um, a stunning jumble of human bones and other assorted objects associated with the deceased. It was a surprise, a surprise bordering on shock for them. But you know what? I thought to myself when I read that, it is a coffin after all. <laughs> and inside a coffin, what would you normally expect to find? Now, I know that there are reasons for this. They assume that over the <clears throat> two and a half thousand years that the tomb robbers have gotten in there, to all that sort of stuff. But nobody, not one single archaeologist, academic, student researcher had bothered to lift the lid and have a peek. Now, today, you and I are gathered because of something which is even more surprising, even shocking. And, and it's shocking and surprising for the exact opposite reason. It's not the surprise of academics finding human remains inside a coffin where they should have been, but rather it's the shock of some women uh, finding a tomb to be empty. No bones, no body, surely that is the greatest surprise. However, we're not here today in order to commemorate the discovery of an empty tomb. Uh, what we're here for today is to think through its reasons. Because the missing body poses uh, two of the most important questions that we could uh, possibly have to think through. The questions of why was this tomb empty? And secondly, what's it got to do with us? Why does it matter to you and I, uh, living here at Port Macquarie this Easter long weekend, 2,000 years down the track? So we need to go back to Mark's Gospel, don't we, to chapter 15, where about 500 years after the Sydney University coffin was crafted and a body placed inside it, uh, we learnt on Friday that the man Jesus was unjustly executed as a criminal by crucifixion. But we saw on Friday that that darkest of all days can only be called Good Friday because of what happened next. In Mark chapter 15, we see that uh, people were surprised, they were even shocked by what happened after the crucifixion. Firstly, we see it with regards to the Roman governor, Pilate. Because if you care to have a look at uh, chapter 15, verse 44, uh, he was surprised when he heard that Jesus was even dead. He didn't expect Jesus to be dead because Jesus had actually died too soon. Normally, with crucifixion, it takes men two to three days before they succumb to death. But Jesus had died on the same day. It was too soon. And we know the reason for that was because he voluntarily gave up his spirit and entrusted him to the Father. Uh, the death of Jesus was also a little bit too soon for a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. 
he was the man who arranged for Jesus' body to be uh, buried. Uh, in verse 46, Mark tells us that uh, Joseph uh, took Jesus down from the cross, uh, wrapped his body in linen, placed it in a tomb, which was his own tomb, the tomb he'd set aside for himself, which he closed up with a rock. Uh, actually, it was quite surprising that Pilate allowed him to do this because uh, the, one, of the re- one of the reasons that's surprising is that in the uh, Roman uh, Empire, when men were crucified, they were normally left on, on the crucifix uh, to rot because crucifixion was a public demonstration of who really is in control. And guess what? If you get out of line, this is what's going to happen to you. So the bodies were left on the uh, crucifix to rot, uh, except that um, the Jews had ceremonial issues with that, particularly if that meant that they'll be hanging on a cross uh, on the Sabbath. And so Roman governors would usually hand the body over to the, uh, the family members uh, of Jewish uh, victims, but not if the crime was treason. And yet... That was the very charge that was against Jesus, that he had declared himself to be king, that he was treasonous, and Joseph was not family. Yet, surprisingly, Pilate agreed. Uh, Perhaps he agreed to hand the body over because he, in his heart, he knew that Jesus was innocent of the crime for which he had been convicted and executed. Joseph himself is somewhat surprising. Let me read to you... Uh, from verse 42 to verse 46, just to refresh your memory. In verse 42, it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. There you go. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learnt from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb, cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone across the entrance of the tomb. So we see here that Joseph was a prominent man. He was a member of the, um, the council, the 70-member-strong um, Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish council, which had actually convicted Jesus. They had convicted him. But Joseph was different to the rest. He was a godly man. We learn elsewhere in the New Testament that he was actually a believer. He was a follower of Jesus and he was inside that Jewish ruling council. What we see here is that Mark tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was waiting for the kingdom of God. Did you notice that? He was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, throughout his ministry, Jesus had had a lot to say to his disciples about the kingdom of God. And they were very excited about this because 
they expected that Jesus was going to establish the kingdom of God, that when he arrived in Jerusalem, that he was going to rally up support and that they would, um, yeah, there'd be an uprising against the Romans, that they would drive the Romans out, that there would be victory and that Jesus would establish the kingdom of God as it was in the days of David and Solomon with Jesus as the king. That was their hope. That was their expectation. But now it's all ended in tears. Jesus is a corpse. His friends have scattered. It's ended too soon for Joseph. And so the least he could do would be to organise a proper burial. That's the fitting thing to do. Now, some people these days try to dismiss the resurrection. By the way, when people dismiss the resurrection, it's sometimes not based on historical arguments. It's because they want to actually avoid the implications of the resurrection. For if Jesus has died and has risen again, then that makes him pretty special. That means he's someone whom we need to listen to. And if he has risen from the dead, and if he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, then he's not only king over this world, he needs to be king over my life. That's uncomfortable. So it's, it's better to actually try to dismiss the resurrection so you don't have to deal with the implications of it. But some people uh, try to dismiss the resurrection by claiming that Jesus did not actually die on the cross, that he only uh, lost consciousness and that uh, later on he was able to, to, to revive himself in the, inside the, the tomb and then somehow break through the, the, the seal and uh, look as if he had actually conquered death. Yet as we saw last Friday, the centurion who was present at the crucifixion uh, witnessed the death and he said, surely this man was the son of God. Here we see in these verses that Pilate sought confirmation from the centurion as to whether or not Jesus had died and the centurion the centurions knew what dead men look like they'd seen plenty of them the soldiers centurion declares that Jesus had died and here is the picture of Joseph of Arimathea uh, making himself unclean ritually uh, by carrying the corpse of Jesus himself and the women who cared for him, they had no doubts that Jesus was dead. Let's have a look at verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, 
just after sunrise. They're on their way to the tomb and they ask each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were, what does it say? They were alarmed. They were alarmed. Now these women had a problem because out of respect that they wanted to go to the body of Jesus and they wanted to pour some uh, sweet-smelling oils over his body. But they had no plan as to how they were going to open up the tomb. <laughs> They'd thought through the, the spices and the oil stuff, but they hadn't thought through the shifting away this giant heavy stone. They had seen where Joseph had buried him. Uh, it was, would have been an old quarry where, where uh, tombs would have been dug into the walls of the quarry and the tombs... Uh, had an, an outer room uh, and then an inner room where bodies were laid. And most likely the entrance had a track which had been carved into the ground in front of the entrance so that a large, heavy, disc-shaped stone could be rolled into place and to, uh, to close up the tomb. So... Who would move the stone for them? Turns out that they had bigger problems than that. Because when they arrived at the tomb, they made a shocking discovery. The stone had already been moved. And the tomb was empty. The body of Jesus was missing. And instead, there was this young man sitting there, not Jesus. There was a young man who was an angel. And he was dressed in, in white robes. Listen to what he said. Verse 6, he said, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. They were afraid and who can blame them? They were shocked. They were bewildered. They were trembling in fear. You can see why. The body was gone. They had just met an angel. That'd be terrifying. And the claim of the angel had made was that Jesus had risen. In verse 7, as we see, the angel says that, that, they, that they will see Jesus in Galilee just as he told you. And that's actually quite scary when you think that's chilling because just one day before in chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus had told his disciples, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now, they didn't know what he was talking about. They didn't understand. They didn't comprehend. And it wasn't the first time that Jesus had said things like this. I wonder if you could just turn with me in your Bibles back to chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel. In chapter 9, verse 31. 
Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. We'll go over to chapter 10, verse 33. Chapter 10, verse 33. Just over the page. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. He's speaking of himself. You see, Jesus had already announced the plan in advance. But no one actually expected it to happen. They didn't expect it. There are some people who claim that the disciples were very gullible men who were primed to believe in resurrection. Uh, they were men who, uh, because of the circumstances that they were in, would latch onto any vague rumour that Jesus had risen and they would actually uh, make that uh, a truth for themselves. When in actual fact, when you look through the Gospels, there is not a shred of evidence that the disciples ever actually believed that Jesus would rise again. They didn't believe it until he did. And even so, as we see with uh, the disciple Thomas, they wanted proof. Now, the strange thing about this is that the only people who were thinking about resurrection after Jesus' death were his enemies. His enemies. It was his enemies that, uh, <clears throat> that, you know, that went to the Romans and said that he had already told his disciples that he was going to be raised from the dead, so we better do something about that. So they, went and they sealed the tomb and they put Roman soldiers on guard because they thought, well, certainly the disciples are going to try to snatch his body and then claim resurrection. It's just an interesting irony that it was the enemies of Jesus who were actually thinking resurrection, not the disciples. But now, these godly women were left trembling, bewildered and in fear. And those kind of emotions were not entirely unusual for people who knew Jesus uh, during his, his ministry of three years. Uh, people often found themselves in a, fear, in a state of fear because of Jesus. Not because they were frightened that he was going to do something terrible to them, but rather because of the question, who is this man? On one occasion, there was a, a storm at sea and Jesus stopped the storm by commanding the wind and the waves to stop. And they did. And people are thinking, who is this man? That's frightening that he's got the power to do that. Jesus walked on water. Jesus drove out demons. Jesus healed the sick and he raised dead people to life again such as Jairus' daughter and his friend Lazarus. Of course people were terrified. 
They might have loved him, but they couldn't escape the question of who is this man? Now, Mark tells us that Joseph of Arimathea looked forward to the kingdom of God. He had no idea that it was from his very tomb, the tomb which he had given over for the body of Jesus, that it was from that tomb that the victory of God's king would be announced. Did you notice the victory statement? He is not here, said the angel. He is risen. That's a declaration of victory. Because on the third day, by God's power, the crucified and dead and buried Jesus broke free from the grip of death. And I say the grip of death, friends, because death has its grip on all people. People may mock the idea of resurrection and eternal life. They might say it's ridiculous. They might say that it's just one big, giant, historical April Fool's joke. It's April Fool's Day today, did you notice? Mm. If you believe it, you're a fool. When you're dead, you're dead. That's it. Dead people don't rise. But why do we die? Why is death the common denominator for all people? The Bible's view on this is that we were not created originally with the intention of, of death and annihilation, but that death is God's punishment for our sin. The wages of sin is death, says the Apostle Paul. Man is destined to die once, says the author of Hebrews, and after that to face judgment. Death is a punishment for sin, and we've all sinned. There's not one of us here who has always placed God as being the most important being in our lives. There's not one of us here who's always perfectly obeyed and loved and trusted God, our Creator, as we should. And so that is the power which Satan has over us, because the guilt of our sin leads us to death and after death to judgment and after judgment to separation from God. We don't want God to be involved in our lives. We go through our lives saying, we, you know, I might acknowledge that God exists, but I, frankly, I'd prefer if he just left me alone. I want to live the way I want to live. I want to live his way. We don't want God to be involved in our lives. And so after death, God gives us what we want. And that's what the Bible calls hell. Separation from our creator. Separation from the one who is not only our creator, but is also our good provider. And so therefore it is separation from every good thing which God provides forever. Hell is where God is not. And that's not what you want for yourself. Punishment and suffering which never ends. And it's the penalty for sin. It's the price that we pay. 
But what if someone else was to pay for our sin for us? What if someone who was, who was of infinite value, what if someone who was perfect in their obedience to God the Father, what if that person was separated from God the Father in our place, in your place? What if there was someone who was to cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Would that be enough? Would that pay the the debt that you owe to God? And how long would that separation for that person need to be for the payment to be fully made? The stunning answer is from a Friday evening to a Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. Does the job. Jesus was stone cold dead. He was a corpse. But the resurrection of Jesus proves that his sacrifice has been accepted, that his sacrifice is enough, that the job has been done, that the price has been paid The punishment is over. The debt for our sin has been wiped clean. I don't know if you've had this experience or not, but I remember the day that we finally paid off the debt that we owed for our house. Have you had that experience? You've had that mortgage all those years and the bank's been making these transfers to your mortgage lender all those years, regularly, every month, it doesn't seem to stop, but then you get to go to the solicitor's office, they hand you over the title deed, you take it down to the land's office, they stamp it, they process it, and you know what the bank does? They stop making those direct debits because the debt has been paid in full and you've got the title deed in your hot little hand to prove it. Have that experience? Maybe that's something in the future for you. It does happen eventually. Well, someone might say, why should I believe that the death of a first century Jew can pay for my sins 2,000 years down the track? Why should I believe that? Because Resurrection Sunday is the proof of Good Friday and its effectiveness, its efficiency, that the job has been done. But there is more to this. Jesus, uh, in John's Gospel, chapter 14, once made a promise to his disciples. And as he was preparing them for his death and his resurrection and what would happen after that, which they didn't comprehend at the time. But after his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus said that he would be going to God the Father in order to prepare a place for them. Indeed, to prepare a place for all who put their trust in Jesus. That is, the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of eternal life in heaven for all who trust in Jesus. All who trust that their debt has been paid. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 puts it in a more picturesque sort of uh, way of illustrating it. 
Uh, he says that the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of the crop that's, that's going to come. When the farmer looks out on his field and he sees those first fruits of ripe, you know, that the, 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 the crop is budding and that the fruit is growing, the first fruits he knows that it's going to happen, that the rest of the crop uh, is guaranteed. And that's what the resurrection of Jesus does for us, for all who trust in Jesus. The archaeologists at Sydney University were surprised. They were even shocked to open the lid of a coffin and to find human remains. Actually, what they really found was um, two ankles, two feet, some toes, and as they peel it all away, they're really hoping to find some toenails because apparently that's really, really good stuff for carbon dating. They're excited that their tomb robbers had left a couple of feet behind. That was, that's good news if you're an archaeologist at Sydney University. But if someone were to definitely find the tomb of Jesus, I mean, absolutely, definitely find the tomb of Jesus, there would be no bones inside, and not, at least not any belonging to Jesus, because he's been resurrected. From the day of the empty tomb to his ascension to God the Father in heaven, there were more than 500 people who saw the resurrected Jesus at different times. He appeared first to these ladies and then to the, the twelve and then on various occasions. At one time he appeared to over 500 people all at once. Some of whom Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 are still alive so you can go and talk to them if you wanted to, if you lived back then. Friends, the resurrection is simply the most vital of truths. For it tells us that death is not the end. That life, forgiven life, life spent eternally with God the Father in heaven is available for all who trust in Jesus. The alternative is an eternity spent without God, without any good thing that comes from God. No life. No love, no enjoyment, no pleasure. An eternity spent paying a debt which you can never repay. The debt for your own sin. In hell. So that's something we need to tell people about, isn't it? To warn others. To share with them the great news about the truth and the importance of the resurrection of Jesus and the life eternal which comes alone through his work on the cross. That they too might place their trust and their hope in the one who died and has most certainly risen from the dead. But what about you? I think it'd be remiss of me not to pose that question on this day in particular. There is a question which each one of us needs to answer, and we need to answer this one personally. The question of 
have you placed your trust in Christ's death and his resurrection? Is your life now shaped by the resurrection of Jesus? Looking forward to that heavenly hope and seeking to live your life now with Jesus as your king? Have you trusted that his death has paid the penalty, the guilt that you owed to God? If so, then praise God. Praise God. If not, then this is an issue which you, you cannot simply dismiss. This is a matter of the utmost importance. This is an issue which you need to deal with. It's important that you do. It might be that you need to talk to someone about that, talk to a Christian friend, talk to someone here in church, talk to me if you like. But it's not an issue that can be avoided, particularly on Resurrection Sunday. Because the empty tomb of Jesus is God's promise that the sacrifice of Jesus is enough to do the job, to pay your debt to God in full. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you again for your great love in action that you so loved the world that you sent your only son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you, Father God, that that everlasting life comes through his resurrection from the grave. Help each one of us here, Lord God, to deal with that issue, uh, to uh, confront those questions of the importance of Christ's resurrection and its implications for our lives now, that we too might put our faith in you and receive the resurrection hope that is so clearly offered to us. In Jesus' name, amen.